0: And this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I am so glad that you're listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. Well, I want us to get right into the text today. It's in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you like. It's about the wedding feast at Cana. This is a story where Jesus famously turns water into wine. It's a curious story that raises all sorts of questions, and it's those questions that we need to listen for and be careful of. So let's read the text. Beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Him. So remember, I asked you about the questions that the story raises and the questions that we ask. Those questions are important and we need to be careful of them. We need to consider are we asking God to answer our questions or are we listening to what God has to say? We have all kinds of questions that we want answered. Sure, we have questions that come from this very text we just read. But in general, we have all kinds of questions for God. Perhaps the most frequent question that people ask of God is, God, why did you let this happen? Why me? Maybe the way you phrase it. (sighs) This is most often something we don't want to have happen to us. Why did I lose my job? Why did my loved one die? Why won't my family follow Jesus? Why? It would be good of us to ask in the other direction, since we often ask in the negative, but let's ask in the positive. Lord, why did you bless me with life today? Why did you bless me with family? With, well, insert whatever blessing you're experiencing, put it in there. And then sometimes we ask God some deeper questions. God, why do you allow bad things to happen? Why did you make me the way I am? And maybe questions that we feel are deeper, but maybe they're not. God, what do you think about football? God, why doesn't my team ever win? Whatever sport you happen to follow. Or maybe very silly, we ask, God, why is it that all the best tasting food is the stuff that's bad for us? And we often ask the wrong questions when we encounter the Bible. Or perhaps it's better to say we ask good questions, but we let our questions crowd out God's voice. We say, God, I need to know why. And perhaps while we're asking these questions, why, 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 we need to make sure that we are asking with increasing diligence, Lord, what words do you have for me? Lord, I want to hear what you're saying more than I want answers to my questions. That should be the transformation that happens. If we're not careful, we can step into the trap of demanding the Bible to speak what we want it to say. It is important as we approach the Bible to let God speak His message. And His message is often the word that we had no idea was there. And the story of the wedding at Cana raises all kinds of curious questions. And some of these questions can lead us to forget to listen to what God is actually saying. So here's some of the questions the story raises. Well, how many days from the beginning of the gospel does the story occur? Because it does start with that interesting phrase, on the third day. Well, the third day from what? You know, I'm not really sure we can ever know. And uh, Bible scholars have spent a lot of time and a lot of ink trying to understand the third day. I do think maybe John is foreshadowing something important. We'll come back to this a little bit later. Another question that people often ask when they read this story is, does Jesus endorse the use of wine or alcohol? Because there's a lot of it in this story. I mean, Jesus, the amount of wine that he makes raises all kinds of questions about what he thinks about wine. To be clear, Jesus miraculously changes 120 to 180 gallons of water into the finest wine imaginable. We cannot use this story to justify the consumption of alcohol. And I think we also damage the text if we go through interpretive gymnastics to say Jesus made non-alcoholic wine. It's important for us to just remember that everyone, everyone drank alcohol in the ancient world. Yes, even the kids. Wine was served in the water to purify it, to make it safe to drink. Alcohol killed bacteria in the water. Furthermore, fermentation happens very quickly in the middle east it's almost impossible to have non-alcoholic grape juice in a matter of two to three hours grape juice will become wine it's just the nature of the environment there wine would have always been added to the water especially at a wedding now we do need to remember wine In the ancient world, didn't taste quite the way we think it would. It was very strong, often was bitter, too bitter to drink alone, and it would be mixed in various ratios with water to make the water healthy, or sometimes to celebrate. Sometimes you did twenty parts of water to one part of wine, or six parts of water to one part of wine, or two parts of water to every or two parts of wine to every three parts of water, and that was a wedding mixture. So, yeah, a little bit stronger for parties. Whether or not alcohol was served is not the right question to ask. But wine is a significant detail that should not be missed. And it shouldn't be missed that Jesus makes a lot of it at the wedding of Cana wine and its quantity are important symbols in the Bible. Abundant wine is a sign of the age of salvation. Here's a few texts from the Old Testament to help us see this. In Jeremiah 31, verse 12, we read this, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Joel, 3.18 3.18 says this, In that day the mountains will drip with new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will and will water the valley of the Acacias. Amos nine thirteen and 14 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one-treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I'll bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant the vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. The Jewish people associated wine with the restoration and joy of the Lord, specifically the joy that comes from the relationship with God and the coming of the Messiah. So now, when Mary speaks to Jesus, it's a little more meaningful. They have no more wine. Literally in the Greek, it says they have no wine. And John, the gospel writer, loads these words with meaning. They have no joy is what we could hear. In other words, something's terribly wrong with their relationship with God, and they don't even know it. It's it's the wedding. It should be a celebration, but something's wrong. People don't even know it, and we're meant to ask ourselves, where is our joy? We need a relationship with God that flows with abundance of joy. How do we get it? How about another question that people ask when they read this story? It may be one you've never thought of, but some people, when they read this story of the wedding at Cana, they ask, well, does Jesus like parties? Strangely enough, this is a passage that many people ask and use to justify huge, elaborate wedding parties or just parties in general. I think the Bible has a position on excess. Let's not go crazy, but it certainly is not anti-party. We should not miss that an important part of this story is that God moves in a powerful way in the middle of a most ordinary situation, a wedding celebration, a wedding party. We have an unfortunate habit of moving God into holy places. Jewish weddings and Jesus' day happened in an ordinary place, the home. And we're being told here, God wants to be at work in the ordinary It's amazing how we can create walls and containers for spiritual things and non-spiritual things and separate them. We've moved weddings into church buildings. Those church buildings, while very good and I think very important, we need those places to worship, can cause us to create a divide between sacred spaces and ordinary spaces. The early Christians, however, The church gathered in the temple in Jerusalem as long as they could, but also in their homes. There was no spiritual difference. They didn't say, well, that's a holier place than the house. It was all spiritual. And so, we need to realize that there's no spiritual difference from a church building to a restaurant to our home. The difference is what we do there, and if we acknowledge the presence of the Holy God everywhere in our lives, God is meeting with His people in the most ordinary place possible, their homes. And God wants to work in the corners of your life that feel ordinary, mundane, and sometimes it maybe even feel meaningless. Things that don't seem special to you, things that seem unspiritual, God wants to be there. And it's in those ordinary corners where we stop hiding and we are our most, authentic source, our most authentic selves. You will grow mightily as a man or woman of God when you let God into the most mundane parts of your life, when you let God in when you're cooking dinner, when you're cleaning the house, when you're shoveling the snow, when you watch the big game, when you take your children to extracurricular activities, when you're sitting alone and feeling lonely. every inch of your life is an opportunity to welcome God to move in. Do not make the mistake of thinking that God only lives on Sunday worship services or your morning devotion time or when you use spiritual language. God wants to be at work in the authentic you. And that's why he shows up in the ordinary places of life and in the ordinary setting of a house where there's a wedding feast. God is asking to be let in to the ordinary parts of your life. Will you let him in? Back to weddings and whether or not Jesus likes parties. Still an odd question, right? Weddings happened in an ordinary place in the home, but as much as they were ordinary, they were also very special. We need to picture a village wedding feast. Weddings were the chief celebrations in the local villages. There'd be a public engagement, and that engagement was legally binding. And that engagement, to break an engagement, required a divorce. So when that engagement happened, preparations would be made, sometimes for a year or more. And then one day the wedding would occur. The groom and his party would come to the bride's home. And they'd take her to the groom's home and the wedding ceremony would happen. And instead of a honeymoon, the newlyweds would open their home for a week of celebration. They dressed in special wedding clothes, sometimes even had crowns placed on their heads and were treated like royalty. In Israel, the wedding banquet was a picture that everybody had in their mind when it came to picturing the arrival of the Messiah. So, we should not be surprised when we read about the new heaven and new earth in the book of Revelation, or when we read the book of Revelation in general, there's a ceremony, there's the worship scene in, in chapter 5 of Revelation where people are laying their crowns at the feet of the throne, but at the end of the book of Revelation, when new heaven and new earth are described, and the church is gathered and united with Christ, it's a picture of a wedding. Revelation 21 2 says, I saw a holy city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Is Jesus four parties? Well, the answer we are given is that the Messiah arrives with celebration. It is the best party you will ever experience if you're willing to call Jesus your Lord. Here's another question. Why would Mary be worried about wine running out? Was she a part of the wedding? Was it a wedding for some family? What's going on here? And why does Jesus need to be concerned with it? Well, now we're getting more to the heart of the passage. Jesus gave the bride and groom a wedding gift, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of the finest wine imaginable. Wedding gift giving was carefully considered and done as a way to honor the newlyweds. These gifts also had legal ramifications. If something went wrong at the party and the wedding couple, wedding couple disappointed their guests, they would be subject to public shame. Now, this is different from just feeling ashamed when you do something wrong or embarrassing. You know, you you feel embarrassed and you want everybody to look away and you, you, you just feel like that was awkward. I didn't mean to do that. And hopefully people will forget soon. That's different. Shame was a form of punishment in the ancient world. And the couple, if they ran out of party celebration, if they ran out of wine, they faced that shaming and they faced a debt, a debt they literally had to repay to the guests, so here's a little bit of how gift-giving worked for weddings. All the guests would make contributions of various kinds to help supply the party. But let's use a simple dollar amount just to help you picture what's going on. If you gave $20 toward a wedding, as a guest, you would expect $20 worth of party. When the wedding couple was invited uh, to someone else's wedding, they would then also in turn be expected to give a gift equal to the gift they received from that inviter's uh, wh- So someone gave $20 and uh, for a couple's wedding. They expected that $20 in party back, and then they also expected later I'll invite you to part of my family for a wedding celebration, and I expect you to give at least that $20. So there was this obligation happening. So if we come back to that $20 amount, if guests felt shortchanged, let's say by $10, so they expected, I had I gave $20, I'm supposed to get $20 worth of wedding party, and I got $10 worth of party. They would expect to be uh, have that $10 made back up to them later. So every time this couple went to weddings in their village, they would be deeper into debt, and they'd have to have a constant jab at the failure of the wedding. Like if, if you uh, gave 20 dollars and you felt like you only got 10 dollars in return, when someone when you invited that couple that fell short to your wedding, you expected 20 dollars from them and the 10 dollars that you fell short on. So it's, it just added up and added up and added up. So what's this have to do with Jesus? Now well, here's a little thing to think about. William Barclay and many other Bible scholars, they suppose that Jesus arriving with five disciples might have been a problem. The disciples were unexpected. He acquired these disciples just three days earlier. Hmm. It's unlikely that the couple, who's probably been planning for a year, adjusted for the extra guests in such a short time. And so Jesus gives a gift of wine. And he released the newlywed couple from shame and years of potential debt. And he actually put the wedding guests in their debt because they got more party than what they paid for. The best wine came after all of that. And here's this significant cultural detail. Wine was a wedding gift that never need paying back. It was a gift without strings attached. This leads us to the real point of the story. And the point of the story is this. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah in the story. Verse 11 is the giveaway. It reads this. What Jesus did here in Cana, in Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. John does something very significant by identifying this story not as a miracle, but as a miraculous sign. A sign reveals knowledge that is unknown. There's a miracle here for sure, but the miracle is not the point. The whole story is a sign revealing who Jesus is. And the verse goes on to say, it revealed his glory. And this is a statement that's usually reserved for God, the glory of God. And John is showing us that Jesus is God. That glory that usually is reserved for God, it's now seen in Jesus. Now, if you'll follow along with me a little more, remember Mary asking Jesus to intervene. Hey, they've run out of wine. And yeah, it's a real problem in the wedding, but the deeper problem is that they have no joy. Remember that? These Jewish people who are supposed to be God's chosen people who are celebrating a wedding, they've got no joy. The system is broken. The sacrifices are not sufficient to truly connect them with God. They need a Messiah and they don't even know it. Jesus then takes it a step further and he uses the stone washing jars at the wedding to reveal who he is. Those stone water jars were used in Jewish washing rituals. Clay ones were not allowed because they would become unclean. They would the whatever you wash with could get stuck into the porous clay. And so these stone jars were designated for ritual washing. And they had two purposes: to cleanse feet upon the entry of the house after walking on a dirty road and two required they were used for hand washing the washing of hands before each meal and between each course i will say it's a ridiculously large amount of ritual washing jars it's unusual for a home and it's actually unusual for a wedding to have this many jars and so despite all of the ritual cleansing jars there is no joy There is no real relationship with God. The jars may be plentiful, but the relationship isn't really there. There's a sharp contrast between the water given for Jewish purification rites and the wine given by Jesus. The jars were part of the rules on how to make Jews clean, but the rules were failing them. Jesus brings the grace and blessing of God in the form that snubs those purification laws. He takes a prime symbol of the law, a practice of purification, in those jars, and he fills them up with wine, with joy. He's essentially saying these are no longer sufficient, and I have the answer. Jesus is the answer. And there's something else about these stone jars. Jesus makes them useless for purification again. There's no need to be purified because he's done something new. And I think we need to remember that. He supplants those stone jars. And you know what? I bet a lot of people did not understand what Jesus was saying at that wedding feast, and they went back to those stone jars later for washing. But they weren't going to make them clean. And you know, Jesus wants to supplant the old way that you are living, the old way that you do things and fill you with new life. But too many of us, we invite Jesus in, we, and then we, after we invite him in, we go about our old ways. We go back to the old stone jars in our life. We're not letting Jesus supplant our old ways and do something new. Are you going to let Jesus do something new in your life? Bear with me a little bit. I know I'm going a little long here today, but there's something else I want you to see in this text, a beautiful picture of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. See, this text is all about revealing Jesus as God, revealing Jesus as the Messiah, but also tells us the kind of Messiah that he is, the Savior, the forgiveness of our sins. We can see it with a word that so many of us struggle with when Jesus addresses his mom woman. You ever hear that phrase, woman, what does this have to do with me? It sounds so impersonal, but actually, it's actually an address of respect. And that address, woman, is threaded throughout the Gospel of John. So let's take a moment, if you will, and follow that Address woman, that formal, respectful address through the gospel of John. We well, read the first one today in John chapter two, verse four, where Jesus addresses his mom and then he does the miracle at the wedding in Cana, but it's not a miracle, it's a sign revealing who Jesus is. The next place we find woman, this respectful address, is in John chapter four, verse twenty-one. Is Jesus has been meeting with a Samaritan woman at a well. And he tells her about a mountain, the mountain that she worships on. Well, they're having a conversation and she's trying to challenge Jesus. Which mountain should I worship on? And he tells her that the mountain she worships on will no longer matter. Because those who worship in the spirit and truth will matter. He says the old way of doing things isn't going to matter. There's going to be something new coming. John chapter 8 verse 10 is the next place, the third place. Jesus uses that address, woman, For a lady caught in adultery. She's facing a penalty of stoning for her sins. But Jesus, having questioned her accusers, turns to her and says, Woman, has no one here to condemn you? And neither do I. The old way is no longer needed. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 26 Jesus now hangs upon the cross. He's dying. It's not what any of the disciples were expecting. And he addresses his mother, woman. In that address, in his death upon the cross, he's about to change how the the forgiveness of sin works forever by paying for our sins in full. And lastly, in the Gospel of John, on the third day, After he was crucified. Remember that detail about John in John at the wedding of Cana on the third day, it says as it begins, well now we're here three days after he's crucified and Mary Magdalene is standing outside, if you'll bear with me, an empty stone container. No, it's not a jar, but a tomb. But let me tell you, just as the stone jars were no longer any good for purification, so this tomb no longer could hold death the same way ever again jesus has done something new and he addresses mary magdalene woman he's the messiah and he wants you to remove your old way of living and he wants you to he wants to do something new in you but the question is will you let him and that is the question that's being asked of us will we let him and will we have faith like the disciples who believed in Jesus will we have faith like the servants who carried the water to the master of the banquet faith flows throughout this story and i've often wondered when jesus tells the servants to fill those water jars or those yeah those water jars with water in those jars you know when does the water turn into wine does it turn to wine in the jars in the cup when they dip it out of the jar or Does it turn to wine when it touches the master's lips? See, I don't know that we always get the privilege of seeing the miracle first. So you might feel like you're carrying around an ordinary cup of water and you're going, I don't know when God's going to do something here. Sometimes you just have to trust that God can do something wonderful with something that looks so ordinary in your life. Will you do that? Will you trust that he can do the miracle, can do the sign? And this miraculous sign was about Jesus being the Savior, the Messiah. He is superior. He is the ultimate. Everything else is inferior, a poor copy compared to him. His saving work pulls you out of the debt of sin. And his work isn't simply just enough. It is super abundant. Will you trust in that? Can you say you've invited God into the most ordinary parts of your life? What are you waiting for? Perhaps you've been going back to your old ways of doing things. Your figurative stone jars. Let Jesus do something new in you. Are you living with faith, trusting in God's plan for you? Trust him, even when it doesn't look like the miracle has happened yet. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for providing such an abundance that we never could have dreamed of or expected or even known to ask for. In that matter of asking, those questions that we have, Jesus, help us to hear your voice clearly so that we don't drown it out with our questions and our own priorities. Jesus, help us to let you into the ordinary corners of our life. Help us to be authentic with you and with your church. Keep us from going back to our old ways of living and trying to find our old, the old ways in which we tried to find meaning. and And Lord, help us to put our faith in you completely, even if it doesn't look like you've been at work yet. Help us to trust that you are working. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.